I've noticed in our culture, and I've, I've noticed it even in myself, that uh, waiting is a lost art. We used to watch television programs, maybe your favorite show came on Thursday night. You had to wait until the next Thursday night before you could see what was going to happen next on your favorite show. Now Netflix, they just release them all at once. And so you just binge. Waiting is, is optional now. When, when we used to go to the grocery store, you used to have to, have to wait and you sort of had to guess which, which, you know, who, which lane seems like a good lane. And, and you, it was expected that there was going to be a wait and now there's all this self-checkout so you can just breeze your way, your way through. Waiting is, is very rare. The way that our culture thinks about sexuality is, is completely absent of waiting. Uh, the way the Bible talks about sexuality, the way that our, our culture traditionally would, would talk about sexuality was that wait until you find a life partner. Uh, 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 engaging in, in sexual intercourse is, is a huge deal and so make sure that, that, that you have one partner for one lifetime. And, but, but now it's, no, no, don't wait. Why wait? Do it now. Why bother for a partner? You've got the internet. Just, just indulge whatever desire you have right here, right now. The way that our world is thinking about justice right now. There, there's no patience. There's no waiting. There's no due process. There's no weighing of the evidence. In a no, it's, we want justice right this second. We heard about it, and now we want justice immediately. We don't know how to wait. And as, as someone who lives in this culture, I, I'm having a hard time waiting. But for one month out of the year, in, in this highly impatient society that's allergic to waiting, we all agree to wait. In the month of December... We all, we all pretend like we want to wait. We all put our impatience aside and our desire for instant gratification aside and we go out and we buy all these presents and, and then we wrap them up and we put them under tree. And we, what do we say? We say, wait. At what other time do we do that? We wait. We have these little, these little calendars. Non-Christians will, will buy these, these calendars with these little doors that open. Here's day one and day two. And it's all encouraging waiting. There's something about Christmas time where everyone in our culture, everyone in our society says, hey, maybe it would be good for us to, to wait here. You see, God has designed this world where waiting is, is part of his good gift for us. That things grow out of the ground, not instantaneously, but it requires patience, it requires waiting. Ma maturing physically and spiritually and emotionally takes time. You can't rush those kinds of processes. We have to wait. And there are certain things that God puts in our lives that forces us to wait. 
And although everything in our culture says it's wrong to wait, God reminds us that it's actually, it's actually good to wait. So today we're, we're going to be looking at a passage, a story of a, of a couple that, that waited on God for 25 years. And they were waiting even, even before that. And, and we're going to see that, that even when we're waiting, that we can trust that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And because God is faithful to fulfill his promises, we can be people of obedience and people of joy. And so we're going we're gonna to pray for God's help as we, as we open his word right now. And so Heavenly Father, God, we, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have set things up in such a way that are, that are, that are good for us, Lord. Thank you that you have given us times of waiting times of longing. Thank you that, that Christmas is a time where we wait. And Lord, I, I pray that as we open your word right now, Lord, I, I pray that you would be very present with us. I pray that you would uh, speak with the power of the Holy Spirit and that you would bring a, a sense of full conviction and a full commitment to live out what it means to, to follow you. And so God, we pray for power and we pray for grace in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title for today's message is, is The Long Awaited Son. The Long Awaited Son. Abraham and Sarah have been waiting 25 years for the birth of their son. And uh, God is faithful in fulfilling his promise. So if you're taking notes today, uh, that's, the, that's the first thing uh, for you to jot down. The first thing we need to remember, if we're going to wait well, if we're going to learn from the times of waiting that God has given to us, we must remember that God fulfills his impossible promise. It was an impossible promise. Verse 1, as Miguel read it, said, The Lord visited Sarah, as he said, the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Do you see how there's a bit of rhythm there in verse 1? As he said and as he promised. He visited Sarah and he did to Sarah. This, this is how Hebrew literature works. It's in parallelism. And so it's, it's emphasizing that God has followed through on what he said. Now that word visited in verse 1 would have really triggered something in the minds of the original hearers that the Lord visited Sarah because remember the original hearers were the escaped slaves the Hebrew people who had been enslaved in Egypt they were waiting themselves for 400 years to be set free and that it says in Exodus chapter 4 verse 31 when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction they bowed their heads and they Worship. That, that word visited is very, very important because God comes personally into our pain and into our struggle and into our waiting. And God could have helped Sarah from a distance, but he visited her. God could have rescued the slaves out of Egypt from a long way off, but he visited them. God is personal. He comes to us in the midst of our struggles. 
He did what he had promised. He did what he said. He fulfilled the impossible promise. It was an impossible promise in order for us to really get a sense of how impossible this promise was. We're going to have to back up 10 chapters. We've been going slowly through the book of Genesis, verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter. And so this whole saga of Abraham and Sarah started all the way back in Genesis uh, chapter 11 and verse 30, where we're first introduced to this couple. And this is, the, this is the detail that we are given about this couple. In Genesis 11.30, it says, now Sarai, that was her name back then, that she was barren and she had no child. Abram and Sarai were unable to conceive children. All their friends that they grew up with, all their cousins and, and all their neighbors, they're all pushing around baby strollers and complaining about how they don't have, a, you know, they can't get a good night's sleep anymore. They, they wish they couldn't get a good night's sleep. Abram and Sarai have been sleeping just fine because there was no little one crying in the middle of the night. There were no late night feedings or diaper changes. There were no scraped knees. There were no pigtails. There were no children. And in that culture, that meant that they were likely being punished for something. That There was something wrong with them. That God or the gods were displeased with them. And this is how we're introduced to this couple. And then God gives this impossible promise to them and in chapter 12 where it says the, the Lord said to Abram go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed so he tells this couple with no kids saying that you're going to have you're going to have kids in fact your descendants are going to become a great nation and not only that that nation is going to end up being a blessing to all other nations and then we're told in verse 4 that Abraham was given this promise when he was 75 years old. They were already past childbearing age. Right from the very start, the, 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 the deck was stacked against Abram and Sarai. But God made this impossible promise. And then as, as if God hadn't been clear enough, he kept ratcheting up the intensity of what he said he would do by giving Abram these, these images, these vivid images, images of what he, was, what he was going to do. He told Abram, look down at the ground in Genesis 13. He said, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. He said, look down at the dust. And then he said, look up at the sky in Genesis 15 verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God kept giving Abram these encouragements, these pictures, these promises. And that Abram's trying to figure out, he had, Abram had already kind of moved on to plan B. He wanted to believe God, but he thought that surely this can't, this can't happen to me in my old age. His plan B was this in chapter 15 verses 2 to 4. But Abram said, I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. 
Abram had a number of people who worked for him, who belonged to him according to the, the economic structure at the time and according to the culture at the time. If you were childless, you just kind of picked someone and kind of adopted them and, and they inherited what belonged to you. Eliezer of Damascus probably had his own children at this point and Abram thought, okay, this must be how God, this isn't really what, I'm not sure why God went all to the trouble to make this promise of having an offspring, but I guess this is it. I guess I'm just supposed to pass everything on to Eliezer. Well, why wouldn't he have just made the promise to Eliezer? He made the promise to Abraham. So Abraham, he'd moved on to plan B. But look at what God says in, in chapter 15, verse 4. The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Again, God doubles down on the impossible promise. Then about a decade goes by. Abram knows, okay, well, so plan B is not an option. And Abram's wife, Sarai, comes up with plan C. Uh, plan C, again, was looking at the culture around them. And uh, how, how can we produce an heir for our family inheritance and to carry on our name? Chapter 16, verse 2, Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, whose name was Hagar. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Abram and Sarai sinned against one another and sinned against the Lord by welcoming another sexual partner into their marriage. They sinned against Hagar because she had no say in the matter. Then Hagar sins against Sarai by belittling her after Hagar became pregnant. Then Sarai sins against Hagar by mistreating her. So then Hagar runs away. God chases after her, brings her back. And in chapter 16, verse 16, plan C comes to fruition. Chapter 16, verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Then chapter 17, verse 1 says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Now in our Bibles, chapter 16, verse 16, that's the end of chapter 16, and 17, 1 is the beginning of the chapter. In our Bibles, the, the distance between those two, it's, it's less than a centimeter, but loved ones, there's a 13-year gap. Plan C seemed to work for 13 years. Where Abram and Sarai are thinking, well, that was kind of, I mean, that's kind of messy. And, I, and, and, and we sinned, but it, it seems like this is how it's going to go. Ishmael, for 13 years, they're raising Ishmael. And this adulterous, awkward arrangement and the bitterness between Hagar and Sarai. It's all very real. But they, they were operating for 13 years under the assumption that this was how it was going to work. Plan C was what they were going to do. How God was going to bring about these blessings. God doesn't bring about these blessings or his blessings through sin. God doesn't need our help to manipulate a situation to fulfill his plan. And so he appears to Abram in chapter 17 and he says, God said to Abraham, as for, your wife, as for Sarai, your wife, I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall, I, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? 
Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abram, Abram laughed a laughter of, of disbelief. He's like, God, you can't be serious. And then Abraham reminds God of plan C. He says in, in chapter 18, or sorry, chapter 17, verse 18, he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, stop saying this stuff about me and Sarah having a baby. We've already handled it for you, God. Here's Ishmael. He's 13 years old. He's, he's ready to receive the inheritance. We can, we can, just, we can just go with the plan, our plan. God says no. He literally says no. Do you see it there? God said no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. You shall call his name Isaac. This is the impossible promise. God here in chapter 21 fulfills this impossible promise. This son is born to Abraham, is given birth not by Hagar, but by Sarah. This is what God had promised. It was impossible, and he fulfilled it. God fulfills his impossible promise. Also notice what it says in in verse 2. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. Notice this, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Not only did God come through, he came through at the exact time. He told them in Genesis chapter 17 and twice in chapter 18, at this time next year, let's get those verses on the screen, at this time next year, at this time next year, at this time next year. And here we have in Genesis 21, at the very time. So he fulfilled the promise and he did it at the very time that he said he was going to do it. Loved ones, God is faithful to fulfill his impossible promises. I love what it says in Proverbs 30 verse 5. It's a, it's a verse that is great encouragement to me. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says that every word of God proves true. Do you believe that? And do you believe that he is a shield to those who take refuge in him? Abram and Sarah, they struggled to trust that the promise was going to prove true. It took 25 years, but it came. And God was faithful to fulfill that impossible promise. It proved true. Loved ones, we must trust in God's word. We must trust in his promises. We must rely on him and not try to manipulate things. In our own sinful ways. There is no plan B with God. There's no plan C with God. There's only plan A. Trust his word. Trust his promises. Trust in his timing. So God fulfills his impossible promise. Secondly, God's people obey his commands. God's people obey his commands. When we recognize that God is a faithful God and that he follows through on what he says he will do, then that produces in his people a desire to obey him. When we see that he's been faithful to us, it produces in us a desire to be faithful to him. And so Abraham here is obedient to God in two ways. In the way that they name their child by naming him Isaac and in having him circumcised. So you can see that he names, them, he names him uh, Isaac in verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. 
And that was commanded him in chapter 17, verse 19. Now, Isaac means laughter. Isaac is a normal name for us today. Uh, because, there, I mean, you look around this room, there's two or three Isaacs in this room right now. Isaac is a, it's a normal name. It was not a normal name in Abraham and Sarah's time because Isaac meant laughter. This is our son, laughter. It's kind of a weird name. I'm sure Abraham and Sarah had some family names that they would have wanted to use. I'm sure that they had Googled like popular baby names at the time and they had some ideas of what they were going to name their baby. They had a lot of time to think about the name of the baby. But because Abraham laughed in disbelief in chapter 17 and then Sarah laughed in disbelief in chapter 18, God's like, well, you're not going to believe what I'm going to have you name your child. You're going to have to name him laughter. And so there's obedience in, in giving their son sort of a weird name. It's a normal name now, but it was weird then. We, we, we went a little bit outside of the box, I mean, within the Bible, but we named our kids some weird names. And, and they're kind of normal names now, I guess, as, 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 as more people are sort of looking to more old school. But when our kids were named, it was, they were weird names. We didn't do it out of obedience. to God didn't command us to give our kids weird names. Jet and Ezra, I hope you guys like your names. But anyway, they, they had to step out. Here, here's our son, la- la- Laughter. And then what the, people would immediately laugh. He's la- his name is Laughter? Well, there's a story. There's a story behind that. And Sarah shares a little about that story. So they, they obeyed by naming their child. And then they obeyed by circumcising their child. God had commanded that in chapter 17, verse 10. And then it says in chapter 21, verse 4, And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. God had commanded him to circumcise Isaac, and so Abraham fulfilled that. And again, for the original audience, they would have understood this. They would have understood that as the people of God, as the children of Abraham, as the people of Israel, they were to circumcise their children. They also would have understood because of other books, other books within the Pentateuch, which came to them really all at once, these Hebrew slaves who are being rescued from Egypt and on their way to the promised land, they would have known that circumcision was not just about foreskin. It was about the heart. It says in in, uh, Leviticus chapter 26, God uh, tells them about repentance. He says if they confess their iniquity, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant. The, 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 The practice of physical circumcision was to speak to a spiritual inward circumcision, a tenderness of the heart, a woundedness of the heart, a brokenness of the heart towards sin and a need for grace. A couple of other examples from the book of of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 12 to 16. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways? Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Again, it was about an inward reality. And God ultimately knew that they couldn't do it on their own. So he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he made a promise. And he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. He will do it. He will create that sensitivity, that woundedness, that brokenness that is needed in order to properly relate to God. And it says, in the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul. Because unless your heart is circumcised, you will only love yourself. And you won't love God and love your neighbor. But only God can change a person's heart to set them, to set them free. That's ultimately what circumcision was about. Now again, the original audience would have understood that this is a covenant sign. God made certain covenants with his people over the, over the duration of his relationship uh, to them. It started with Noah. Uh, there was the, the, the covenant uh, with Noah where the sign of the covenant was a rainbow. And then the people of Israel going all the way back to uh, Abraham practiced the, the covenant sign of, of circumcision. And then once the law was given in the book of Exodus, there was, there was another sign of the covenant and that was the Sabbath. That on the seventh day they rested. They didn't get to rest when they were slaves in Egypt. And, and so, so they, they, they had this day to rest when they collected manna in the wilderness. Again, they didn't collect on the seventh day. And they remember that God rescued them from slavery. They also remember that God created the world in seven days. This was all a sign of the covenant. And then we, of course, as, as the church, as New Testament believers, we have two signs of the covenant. We have baptism and we have a communion. Now, some people try to conflate circumcision with baptism and, and, and baptize infants the way that infants were circumcised. Listen, a baptism and circumcision don't relate to one another in the same way that the baptism doesn't relate to the Sabbath or to the rainbow. It's a new covenant. And, and there is, there is a, there is a, there is a, there are, there is a, a way in which God makes covenants with his people and there is a sign for each of those covenants. And so we have baptism as a, as a sign of death and resurrection, as a sign of cleansing from sin and identity with Christ and with his church. And of course we have communion, which is a continual reminder of our need for forgiveness of Jesus who came, as we celebrate at, at, at Christmas time, who came incarnate in flesh and in blood. And Jesus said, this is my body. And then he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so we as Christians practice these new covenant signs as an act of obedience. But we've got to remember that the sign always follows the grace. God saved Noah and then he put up the rainbow. God, God called Abraham and, 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 and made him these promises and then he gave the command to circumcise. God saves the person before they get baptized. Baptism is just a picture of someone's salvation. The, the, the sign is, is, is just that, it's a sign of something that God has already done. You see, obedience, whether it's following baptism and communion, or whether it's following what the New Testament commands, how a Christian ought to live, the obedience always follows the grace. God didn't appear to the Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt and said, okay, here's this thing with the Sabbath, it's going to be a sign. So if you can keep the Sabbath regularly, I'll set you free from Egypt. That's not how it worked. He said, I set you free from Egypt, now here's a sign. And, and so our obedience is always in response to grace. Our obedience doesn't earn grace. Our obedience is how we respond. So Abram and Sarah are, are sitting there with this, with this miracle baby in their arms. They've been shown so much grace. And so what do they do? They respond with obedience. They give him a weird name, Isaac, and they practice a circumcision. So loved ones, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been shown immense grace. 
And so there are signs of the covenant that we're supposed to fulfill and show to demonstrate that we belong to God. But loved ones, there's also all of these New Testament commands about how we're supposed to live. So are you, are you living a life of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because Lord means master. It means he's ruler. It means he's the king. It means he's in charge. So are we following his word? Whether you find yourself uh, single, whether you find yourself dating, whether you find yourself married, whether you find yourself widowed, are you conducting yourself in the way that you relate to other people, in the way that you relate to the opposite sex, in the way that you re- relate to friends? Are you, conducted, are, are you following God's way or have you decided some sort of sinful plan B or plan C over here off the path? Are you living the way that you ought to live because you've been shown so much grace? Are you living in obedience or, or are you compromised? When you, when you think about when you think about your schoolwork and you think about the pressure to get good, good grades and the, and the internet keeps coming up with new ways for you to cheat, forget Wikipedia, I mean, just get artificial intelligence to write the paper for you. And it's, it's real easy and you know your teacher's a bit of a fossil, they're not going to be able to figure it out. And you're like, I want to get good grades so I can get a good job. And you, know, and you, you start rationalizing about why I can wander off. The, listen, are you, are you in your academic endeavors, are you operating with integrity and obedience? Are you doing things God's way? Or are you doing your own sort of plan B or, or plan, plan C? When you're interacting with your friends at school, Again, are you living like a light in the darkness or are you hiding your light and going with the flow? In your, in your workplace, in your relationships, in all of these areas, are we, listen loved ones, are we living lives of obedience? We've been shown so much grace. And in light of that grace, are we trusting in that grace day by day, trusting in God's promises and living lives of of obedience. Abraham and Sarah, they're not, they're not the perfect models for perfect obedience, are they? It's a pretty bumpy road. It's a pretty crooked path that they took. But here in this moment, they set for us a really good example. God showed us grace. I'm going to respond in, uh, in obedience. So God fulfills his impossible promise. Secondly, God's people obey his commands. And then thirdly, God's people wonder at his power and grace. God's people wonder at his power and grace. Now the name Isaac has already been mentioned three times. Now listen to what Sarah says in verse six. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh over me. So Isaac, 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 he's mentioned three times by name. And then Sarah says, God has made Isaac for me. Everyone who hears me will Isaac. Everyone will laugh over me. I, I can't, I, I used to, I did laugh in the past, a laughter of disbelief. But now I'm laughing a laughter of delight. I, I can't, look at this child. God has given me laughter and everyone who sees me carrying this child around, thinking that it's my great grandbaby, will laugh when I say, no, this is mine. He came from my womb. I gave birth to this baby. It's a laughter of delight. It's Isaac. And then I love what she says in verse 7. Who would have said? Who would have said that this was possible? I know who would have said. God would have said. And he did say. It was an impossible promise 
but God was so faithful in, in fulfilling it. Then look at the end of verse 7. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Do you notice that? His old age? There's a complete double standard when it comes to men's, men's age and women's age. Have you noticed that? Men, if you don't know this already, whenever a woman tells you her age, first off, you never ask and you never guess. But if a woman tells you her age, you look stunned. What? And you assume that they're at least 15, 20, 30, 40 years younger than what they tell you. And you press them. Listen, God tells you not to lie. You need to be telling me that you're actually that age. That, that's how we are supposed to, you know, but with men, they're just old as dirt, right? So Sarah here says, Abraham in his old age, Sarah, what about your age? That's not important right now, okay. That's part of the impossible promise though. God's people wonder at his power and grace. At his power. God has given us this miracle baby. That's his power. God has given us this miracle baby. That's grace. Who are we? We're just living in Ur of the Chaldeans, not seeking after God, and yet he appears and gives us this promise, and we gave him every reason to cancel us. We gave him every reason to go and find another couple. But God has shown his power and his grace to us. And, and this God who, shows, who showed power and grace to Sarah and Abraham is a God who continues to show power and grace to his people. And we've talked before about the concept of typology. It means that God works according to a particular type, like a key on a typewriter. Or when you have a certain friend who always behaves in a particular way, you sort of roll your eyes and say, that's typical, right? It's a type. And God works in types. There's a typical way that God works. And so in the time of the judges, when the people of Israel are suffering, Samson's parents, who were barren, have an angelic appearance, a promise of a, of a son. That's a type. Another barren family has a son, and that son has a, a purpose in God's redemptive plan. And then you fast forward to Hannah praying at the, at the, at the tabernacle. And she's barren. And God hears her. Again, that's a type when Samuel is born. So God works in these typical ways. And the way that typology normally works is that God does something big and foundational among his people. And then he repeats the cycle or he, he, he lays down that type a couple of other times in anticipation that he's going to do something even bigger, even bigger than the first one. And so that the ultimate type or, or, or what all of these types are ultimately pointing to is, is another miracle baby. Another miraculous birth, the birth of Jesus. And we, we already looked at the, a comparison between Mary in Luke chapter 1 and Sarah in this story. Let me show you here on a, on a chart. So both had an angelic announcement. Both were a long promised son. 
both had an unexpected and miraculous birth. I mean, one was postmenopausal, the other was pre-intercourse. Both would have all the greatest gynecologists in the world scratching their heads. Both of them had statements saying, is anything too hard for the Lord or nothing will be impossible? And both were given significant names about the role they were playing in God's plan. Isaac, which, which means laughter, and Jesus, which means God saves. You see, God speaks in these types. He works in these types. And to really get our attention, in Luke chapter 1, God doubles it up. Not only does Mary the virgin conceive and give birth, but prior to her giving birth, he redoes the Abraham and Sarah miracle with Mary's relatives, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah starts connecting the dots. He puts himself, he's like, I'm in Abraham's sandals here. And this is what Zachariah, so there's the Magnificat, Mary sings a song, and then this is Zachariah's song. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited. Genesis 21, he visited Sarah. Exodus 4, he visited the people of Israel. Luke 1, he's visiting the people again. And he's going to do something great from just setting, greater than just a miraculous child or setting people free from slavery. This child is going to set us free from sin. He's visited and redeemed his people to show the mercy promised to our fathers. The oath swore to our father Abraham. Zechariah was connecting the dots. He understood that this is a God who just shows grace and power to undeserving people. And then, of course, so Mary rejoices in the Magnificat. Zechariah rejoices, and then joy and wonder and amazement just follows the whole Christmas story. The angels come and say, we bring you good news of great joy. The shepherds went off glorifying God and praising him. The magi rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Simeon held the baby in his arms and rejoiced. Anna, who had been waiting at the temple, rejoiced in the Lord. Mary treasured all of these things in her heart. They are wondering in God's power and his grace. But there was one other person who rejoiced in the arrival of Jesus. And we don't learn about it in the Christmas story. We learn about it when Jesus has grown up and, and, and as he's performing miracles and teaching and healing people. And he keeps getting into these arguments with the religious types. And they're debating with him and they're calling him a son of Satan. And Jesus is like, I'm not a son of Satan. And he says, you are. And they're like, no, we're sons of Abraham. And then Jesus says, let me tell you about Abraham. Let me tell you about that one who had that miracle baby, Isaac. And Jesus drops this on them in John 8, verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Abraham's 100 years old. He, he knows he doesn't have much time left. And, and he, he's holding this baby Isaac in his hands, but he knows that there's, there's, 
There's supposed to be stars of the sky. There's supposed to be dust of the sea. His, his descendants are supposed to be a blessing of all nations. Abraham knows he's running out of time. But he, in that moment, as he's looking into the eyes of his little baby Isaac, he's seeing something far bigger. He's seeing a faithful God who has been faithful to fulfill his promise up to this point. And, and in some way, he saw the day of Jesus in the birth of Isaac. And of course, I mean, Abraham died and went to be with the Lord and was obviously up there when, what, as the sun was being sent down and he would have rejoiced then too. But there is this plan of God that, that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed so that every tribe, nation, and tongue, a, a Revelation 7, a crowd that cannot be counted, that's represented partially in this room. Look around this room. That we have a God of grace and a God of power and a God who has orchestrated things. And when Jesus made that comment about Abraham, they asked another question that Jesus said before Abraham is, I am, or was, I am. Then they picked up stones to try to kill him. One of the multiple assassination attempts on Jesus before he went to the cross because it wasn't his time. But then when Jesus went to the cross, the, 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 the promises of the blessing to all nations. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He meant when I'm lifted up on a cross, that he would draw all men to himself. That the blessing that was promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 would be available to all of us. All of us who sin like Abraham and Sarah with our own plan B or our own plan C. All of us who like sheep have gone astray. But God sent his son Jesus to come and to rescue us. Listen, and maybe, maybe you're here today and you didn't even really know God had a plan A. Someone just invited you to church and you've been on, you're not on plan C, you're on like plan L or Z. You're out of plans. And God brought you here for a reason because it's time to get on plan A. You were created to be in a relationship with God. And you have wandered from him. And grace and power is available for you today. That this miracle baby, Jesus Christ, came on a rescue mission to live a perfect life. The life that Abraham couldn't live. The life that I couldn't live. The life that no human could ever live. He lived in absolute holiness and perfection. And he suffered and died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. So our sin could be given to him. And so that his perfect holiness and righteousness could be counted to us. And if you would come to Jesus today, if you would admit that you are a sinner and believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to rescue you, if you confess your sins and place your faith in him, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, you will receive forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the promise of eternal life. And you like Abraham and Sarah, and like so many people, will wonder at God's power and God's grace. But listen, I know many of you are sitting here today and you're like, yeah, I remember when I made that decision. I was seven years old in Sunday school, or I was a teenager, or I was an atheist in university, and God introduced me, or God brought a friend into my life who led me to the Lord. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I made that decision. 
I made that decision, you know, 20 years ago or two years ago or, or, or two weeks ago. Listen, we all have a responsibility. We have the responsibility of obedience in response to God's promises. But loved ones, we also have a responsibility to rejoice. And I know, I know it's hard. Like, it's hard. There is so much in our world that's just discouraging. And some of us are looking ahead like 2024. Like, remember when we couldn't wait to get rid of 2020? I don't know if any of you have this sort of sense of anxiety or worry. When you look about what's happening in the world geopolitically, when you look at what's happening south of the border, you're like, 2024, can we skip this year? There's a, there's a lot to be concerned. There's a lot to be discouraged about. And, and quite frankly, I've struggled to find joy doesn't just come like I wake up in the morning, joy. No, some of you are like that. I'm not. But we, we have a stewardship. We have a responsibility to rejoice in the Lord to wonder at his power and grace, to allow the the good news of the gospel and the reality that God is a promise-fulfilling God, to allow that to regularly wash over our lives and seep deep into our hearts and overflow into abundance of joy. And joy comes with waiting. And you may not feel it right away. And it may not have the same, the same effect on you that it might have in the past. Listen, God's always, listen, God works in types, but he's always doing a new thing. And so God wants to do a new thing in us in this season. But will you lean into him and will you trust him and will you obey him and will you seek him and will you rejoice this Christmas season? Because we have a responsibility to do it. Let's, let's bow our heads and, and pray to that end. Heavenly Father, help us. Lord, we are told in Psalm 16 that in your presence there is fullness of joy. We believe what we've sung. We believe that Emmanuel has come. God with us has come. You have visited your people. We believe that. And so we should be a joyful people. And so, God, I pray that step by step, moment by moment, even beginning with how we respond right now in song, I pray that we would trust you. And and I pray that we would rejoice in you. Lord, we don't have all of the answers when we think about what's happening in some of our lives personally, when we think about what's happening globally and, and politically, Lord. God, we we pray for your help. We want to rejoice in you. We want to wonder at your power and at your grace. And so God, we pray that you would do just that. Be with us, Lord. Strengthen us. Lift up our eyes. Open them to see all of the beauty and all of the glory, all that you have given us as your people. And fill us with joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.